Welcome back to The Film Experience. I'm your host, Nathaniel. And as you know, uh, we really obsess over the Oscars here. So once a month during the summer, uh, we have a little smackdown where we look back at past Oscar vintages. We hop around through different eras. The topic this time around is 1981. Now, Chariots of Fire won the Best Picture Oscar, uh, beating Atlantic City on Golden Pond, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Reds. But we come at the Oscars from a different angle on this series, and we look um, at the actressing from the edges. So the actresses we'll be discussing today are Maureen Stapleton in Reds, Elizabeth McGovern in Ragtime, Joan Hackett in Only When I Laugh, Jane Fonda in On Golden Pond, and Melinda Dillon in Absence of Malice. Um, and I'm very excited to welcome the panel. I'll let them speak for themselves, but we have actors Sean McGuire and Donna Lynn Champlin, festival programmer Amir Sultani, critic Boyd Van Hoy, writer-director Eric Bloom, and myself, Nathaniel. So we're just going to jump right into the conversation. Uh, welcome to the SmackDown, everyone. I'm very excited to share uh, this panel. It's so amazing. And we have we do have a, a two returning guests, Donna Lynn Champlin. Yay! I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. And so why did you want to come and talk about 1981? Oh, first of all, I had so much fun the last time. That so when when y'all asked me again, I was like yes. Um, and also, I just the that that year for movies was astounding. Yeah. Um, so I you know I was really excited to um, I hadn't seen some of them, so I was really happy to see some of them, and then I was really happy to revisit a couple of movies that I'd seen. Um, you know, I was a wee babe. I was a youngster in nineteen eighty. 1981. Um, so it was it was really fun to revisit a couple of those movies too, and and remember, in one aspect for Ragtime especially, remember how much I absolutely love that movie, and then it on Golden Pond maybe um, not so much, with uh, how I felt when I first saw it, and then how I feel about it now. That is definitely a topic <laughs> we'll get into, um, and also another returning guest, yeah. Eric Bloom. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, 1981 was kind of like the movie, the year I fell in love with movies. I was also very, very young, but yes. um, but I it was the first year that I became aware of like Oscars and movies, and I was 12 and encouraging my mother to take me to see you know like Reds, which most other 12 year olds had no desire to see. <laughs> so um, so I have a, a great fondness for that year. In yes, I know we'll get into how. They all seemed better than they are, but we'll get to that. Um, and then uh, the rest of our guests are first-timers on the SmackDown. Uh, first of all, Sean McGuire, very happy Hello. to have you. I apologize for the crying in the background. I do not have anybody trapped in a dungeon. It's just my children. So <laughs> just, just to alert the people that cannot see us that uh, everything is fine here. Everything's just fine. Great. And did you, did, you, did you have any feelings about 1981 before you agreed to um, do this? I, I did. I mean, a bit like Eric, I mean, I, I was born in 76, I was about five, six years old, but I remember, um, I think because Chariots of Fire won Best Picture that year in England, obviously, that was um, a big celebration. And the music for Chariots of Fire became a theme that uh, echoed throughout the next 10 years of everybody's life in England. Uh, I think it was a point of pride that that movie had done well and about, you know, Roger Bunster and everything. So, um, but also, you know, for me, it was a bit of an awakening because it's the year of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which yeah. Frank, I think is better by a thousand times than every other movie we watched, but, um, you know, not an Oscar typical kind of favorite. So, but yes, as you've all said, we'll get into the performances and stuff. But yeah, I, I, I was starting to become aware of my love for film um, around that age, because I just made my first film, and so uh, um, that's why I wanted to do this. I wanted to watch films that I hadn't seen that I knew I should have. Yeah, great. Um, and then uh, we have uh, freelance critic Boyd Ben Hoy. Hi. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was one in 1981, so I did not go to the cinema uh, at that time. But um, I mean, I was just excited to, I mean, I knew of all the actresses and I had actually not seen a single of the films that we watched. Um, except oh, for, that's exciting. Except for Reds, which I do not remember much of. I mean, I think I, I must have been maybe 10 or something when I saw it on TV. So it's like, yeah, very, very big memories of that. Um, 
So I watched all of them, you know, sort of with fresh eyes, which was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, festival programmer Amir Sultani. Hey, everyone. Um, I basically just wanted to do the SmackDown because I it's one of the series that I never got around to contributing to when I was a film experience contributor back in the day. Um, but um, yeah, I, I didn't expect everybody to start talking about their age, <laughs> which I, I could show yeah, up here that fault. I'm the youngest one of the lot. Uh, you, even, you weren't even alive, were you? No, I was born in 1988, but actually just How before we started you? reading this podcast, I was reading about a soccer player who retired at my age. Uh, so I don't feel so great about my age today. This podcast made me feel a little bit better. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I uh, started writing for the film experience back in 2010 and stopped for real life reasons in 2016 because I got too busy and doing a SmackDown was a thing I always wanted to do that I never got around to. Um, also, the 80s are kind of my biggest blind spot anyway of all decades i think i've seen more films from the 20s and 30s than i've done 80s so uh, i'd seen reds in university but the other four i hadn't seen before so it was good to you know yeah get into them i actually think that that's a fairly common experience that the the, the films from like 10 years before you were born are like tend, tend to be a blind spot for people because they're not they're already by the time you're like a teenager they're already like old news and cultures moved on from them but they're not classics yet that sort of thing um but um i did not see any of these five in the theaters back then i was also pretty young <laughs> and i did probably want to see on golden pond because i loved jane fonda from like the time i was little but i grew up in a really conservative household so jane fonda was a no-no <laughs> So like Barbarella, baby. Yeah, so I'm sure yeah. that, Howie Jane was probably the reason your parents didn't like her. I would yeah, imagine. exactly. So so like I was always hearing that she was this evil person, but my love for actresses transcended any any nature versus nurture. It was total nature. I just loved actresses from the get go. So um, so yeah, I wanted to see on Golden Pond, and I I'm always surprised looking back on older years, like before you know I was fully into movies and adults and all that, uh, realizing how different the cinematic landscape was. And in 1981, Uncle and Pound was the second biggest hit of the year. Wow. That Like the type of money, if you translate for inflation, <laughs> that like a superhero movie would do now. Wow. Wow. Behind only Raiders of the Lost Ark. So. Right. For, yeah. I mean, yeah. So it, it just seems crazy that like families like flocked to this movie. Well, I think Catherine uh, Hepburn and and I think Henry Fonda both had an enormous respectful following in the states and around the world, and and this was Henry Fonda's last film, I believe. So um, maybe there was some sense of maybe we should go see these two great people do this dance one last time before they pack it in. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they definitely used all the meta elements of the movie, which people brought up in their little blurbs of the, the the Fonda family and and like the, the sort of swan song. Did that kind of thing even happen in the 90s or did it basically stop a few years after that? Because I can't I can't think of a best-selling film of that kind in the 90s even. I mean it's I think it started phasing out in the 90s. I mean if you look at like box office charts it gets more and more franchise like from the late 80s onward and so now it's just like if you're not a sequel you're not going to be in the top 10 <laughs> or if you're not like a special effects extravaganza but in um, the 80s it was not uncommon like terms of endearment made over like 100 million dollars at the time i think mm-hmm. in three you know yeah, that, like that could make a shitload of money yeah it was before the before tv had uh caught up to movies in terms of quality like people people just generally thought well tv is just not as good as movies type of thing also i think and this might not be a popular thing to say but i think our iq points have dropped significantly from 1981 the kind of art and the kind of things that we were reading and doing and talking about we were appreciating things that had some caliber to them and now as you say it's all just a franchise it's got to be a comic book it's got to be a prequel it's got to be some intellectual property from somewhere else and I think reality TV, our current president, and a million other things, we've just got a lot dumber and appreciate things 
uh, not of such quality now that we did then. I don't know if we've become dumber or if corporations have just hit more of the bullseye of mediocrity for safety. Mm. You know, even like independent films, Sundance and everything has sort of been taken over. I think people, I mean, I would like to think that if there was um, a good um, golden pond that was <laughs> created now that people would still go to it. I, I think it's not so much the, the people being dumber. I think it's more of corporations dumbing down the product that's coming out. Sure. I don't know. I would hope that we would still respond yeah. to something good. Yeah, but I mean, right, what, we're being, what we're being fed that is different. Um, yeah. you're right, there's still obviously cultured, intelligent people seeking out great art, but the corporations have seen the money, prof the profit line on those things for high art is not as good as the profit line on a Right, TV. right so in the middle. Doing... They're aiming right for the middle. Yeah. <laughs> well, Boyd, Boyd, when we were talking offline, you even mentioned this to me that you thought, you know, these movies were dealing with really, even if they weren't dealing with them well, they were dealing re with really thorny issues. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that in Absence of Malice, for example, uh, and also when I laugh to an extent, is that, I mean, these kinds of issues now are sundance movie issues and not big movie issues. Yeah. Um, so that's that's very interesting to see that, you know, those things got nominations then. Now it's, uh, it's more difficult. And I mean, Reds and Ragtime are both very epic movies, uh, which, I mean, and then there's Chairs of Fire and there's others from that year. I mean, Indiana Jones, of course really big, big movies, like how many big movies, original big movies do we get um, with that kind of ambition, you know, that are not sequels. Mm -hmm. They're not a lot each year, unfortunately. Yeah. But of course, this doesn't always speak to quality, because I noticed a few of you, I know Sean and Amir were both very, like, anti on Golden Pond. <laughs> Amir, your little uh, quip about the cheese smell wafting off of it made me laugh. But I have to admit... Yeah, I couldn't I, tell it was more cheese or syrup. It's a <laughs> bit of both, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just... Um, I mean, this maybe doesn't make me look so good after what Donna and Sean said, but I think we're kind of accustomed to a different rhythm of film, too, um, in the sense that... I mean, you could play on Golden Pond on, like, four times the actual speed, and the scenes would play like normal scenes do now in a Netflix film. Um, and it just kind of, at some point, it lost me because I didn't really... It's not that I didn't care connect to the characters, but like Donna said, I probably would have connected to them in a better version of this film. I just Something about it really didn't hit me the right way. The first 30 minutes of On Golden Pond are glacially paced. Glacially. Yeah. It is unbelievable how slow the first 30 minutes of that movie are. You mean before yeah. Jane shows up? Before <laughs> Jane shows up, yeah. And then it doesn't really get any better, but at least it... it oh, then she leaves. So. <laughs> Here's the thing. My favorite performance in that whole movie was Dabney Coleman. Where the fuck was his Oscar nomination? <laughs> Why? Everybody in that whole damn movie got nominated except for him. And he was the one that I was like, oh, yeah. Move it along, yeah. moving it along. Here we go. Sense of humor. Nice. There we go. Sprinkling it, you know, keeping your connective tissue. Like, I was like, he's the only one. <laughs> he's the only grace in that movie for me. When he came and I was like, oh, Dabney Coleman, I forgot that he was in this. Oh, what an unsung hero. The rest of it was like, you can go and shite. You're all boring the hell out of me. <laughs> Even the great Catherine Hepburn seemed like she was doing an impression of Catherine Hepburn. I was just like... She needs to respect people's bodies. My eight-year-olds... <laughs> knows better than to be all handsy on people. I, I really felt like, especially with Jane Fonda, she was just using her hands and shaking, like trying to shake a better performance out of her. And I was like, honey, it doesn't work that way. Like, let her go. Well, that's probably why she's an actor and not a director. <laughs> oh, bless. I thought Catherine Hepburn was full on bad in this movie. Mm -hmm. she's, based, she's not playing a character. She's playing her own wonderfulness. Mm -hmm. And granted, yeah. the director treats her really, you know, monumentally. And there's so many cutaways to her looking noble and brave. And it's, I thought she was bad in it. I thought she was you know, doing She used up all of that Catherine Hepburn in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. All of the good Catherine Hepburn <laughs> in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And what was left over was donated to On Golden Pond. <laughs> Accurate. 
And yeah. but do you guys it's not like wish all the that fat um, was left over from a good performance? It was like a residue shadow of of when she crushed it in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. This I was like, oh, Kate, sit down, love. It's over. Wrap. <laughs> But I yeah, my, my reaction to I I'm the one the one person here who really likes on Golden Pond I guess because it's like one of those corn pone things that just works for me I know it's shameless and manipulative but like you know sometimes that stuff works for you. No, I like it too. I mean, it's like a kind of 1980s cheese situation where I'm like, there are days and times where this is exactly what you want to see. <laughs> Yeah. Here's the thing. I thought into pretty maybe it's just like today's culture watching this, but the Henry Fonda character is such a dick. And he like they he makes people feel bad for his feebleness, but then when they are sympathetic, he like is mean to them. Yeah. It's kind of a really it's merciless and bizarre. And the only people who stand up to him in the movie are the men. Like Dabney Coleman calls him yeah. on it, and even Doug McKean, the kid calls them on it, but the women are supposed to understand that he's just doing the best he can. And they <laughs> should just, the women should just pull it together. And I'm not like a PC person in many of these ways, and but like, it felt turdy to me. I thought it made a great case for euthanasia. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> I mean, he is just a saying, If you're that miserable, just shuffle off. You know, we've only got so much time on this planet. We're in a pandemic. I don't have time for the Henry Fonders. If you're miserable, son, there's the tablets. Well, that's why you thats why you love Dabney Coleman, obviously, because he was really taking the piss out of Henry Fonda. It was not that scene. I didn't, you know, here's the weird thing about revisiting a movie that you liked as a kid a lot. I do not remember. I didn't remember Dabney Coleman was even in it. I didn't either. And I totally had the same reaction you guys did, where I was like, wow, he's really engaged in this material and he's surprising me. And like that scene between just him and Henry Fonda is really beautifully acted, actually. It's so like. You can see when he calls Henry Fonda on being a jerk. Henry Fonda, it's one of his best moments in the movie. And you see Henry Fonda has a moment like, shit. <laughs> and like it's really nice. Yeah, I kind of Henry wish a little bit when I was watching the film that Henry Fonda would be less sort of sticky and would just be a bit more like himself. Uh, and then I read after the fact that Jane Fonda uh, bought the rights to the book because it made him think of her father and wanted him to play himself. And I was like, ooh, I don't know what that says about their relationship. But also, I guess like either way. That's just the performance that it is. But I can't believe that he won an Oscar for I mean, It's kind of a coronation Oscar, obviously. Yeah. The last one of his career, but still. Shameless. But, but I think, like, it's interesting that the, the, the meta stuff of, like, the Fonda versus Fonda stuff I was couldn't. so polarizing for this group. Because oh. to me, that's one of the most interesting things about the movie is the, its meta-ness. Because not only, like... People don't, I don't think people re remember this now, but at the time, Jane Fonda, and I, I, I certainly wasn't aware of this, but in reading Oscar history at the time, Jane Fonda was considered the natural successor to Katharine Hepburn in terms of somebody who was just going to keep winning Oscars and going to become like the biggest Oscar star of all time. Because she'd already won two at that point. Mm. And Katharine Hepburn supposedly called her up after this Oscar ceremony to say, you'll never catch me now, because it was her, you know. Wow. Her fourth. <laughs> so, so I love all the meta stuff about this movie. And I think the stiffness of Jane Fonda's performance, which some of you didn't like, actually is really works for the movie, even if it is a bug of the performance rather than a feature. I feel like, though, she the the script or the editing also worked against her. There were some really weird like juxtaposition of one scene. She's like, really trying hard, you know, to like pretend that everything's okay. And then the next scene, she's like a surly 12 year old. There's no, there's no connection. There's no like what happened during the day. Like, and all of a sudden she's just like selling in a chair. And I just kept imagining her script just being full of like smiley faces and frowny faces. I just, <laughs> there was no, I couldn't see the through line between her in her behavior between the scenes. And granted, that might not be her fault. I, say, I bet she made those transitions and those transitions that you're talking about ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, they got cut. The movie was so goddamn long and boring. Even the editor was like, dude, you're going to have to take some of these transitional moments out because 
the movie's three weeks long at the moment. <laughs> we have to cut it down. And then poor Jane Fonda is like, what'd you guys do? What'd Jane's you do? just like, you just left the scene with the bathing suit, right? Got it. <laughs> I mean... Let's move on to Absence of Malice because here we have like a role that's very small and the, the arc is very similarly like tiny, but you know, all of her scenes are sort of about her arc through yeah. the movie. But one thing I wanted to talk about for the lay people out there who don't know this term, um, I would love to hear Sean and Donna, because you both brought it up, talk about business and what that means to an actor, because that comes up a lot in this movie. Like, for example, Sean, you hated the smoking. I was excited by the film straight away. Lovely, love Sidney Pollock, because I adored Paul Newman, love Sally Field. All, all of it was good for me. And then, um, is it Melinda Dillon? Is that yeah. It? yeah. When she comes on, I like her, seen her in previous stuff. I think she's a good actress. Two things I hate, that just cardinal mistakes. If you do not smoke in real life, do not smoke in the movie, because you can tell when somebody doesn't smoke. And, and she leant so heavily on that crutch that I was like, your entire performance is based on a trick that you cannot do well, and therefore just annoyed the shit out of me, because yep. had she just got rid of the cigarette and just, just do what you're doing but without the cigarette, the performance would have been great. And I guess the Academy still passed it and nominated her. But I was like, it's like when people pick up their suitcases and you can tell there's nothing in them. Immediately, you're taken out of the reality of the moment. So everything else has been done to create an effect, an illusion. You pick up an empty suitcase, I'm like, there's nothing in it. Put some fucking props in the suitcase, prop people. And if you don't smoke, don't smoke in the movie unless you can do it well. Because once I, I enjoyed the movie, but that bit, I was just like, nah, sorry, you cannot get any nominations from me. I know. I am 100% with you, Sally Field, as well. Clearly not a smoker. Yeah. I mean, be, you know, the tapping the ashes that aren't there are like dabbing out, almost ready to take a drag and then distracted. What? Yeah. Oh, luckily, I can just tap dabbing out, out a cigarette. Entirely unsmoked cigarette. Yeah, Nobody does so that. So okay. I have to I have to know, uh, but but for people who are listening who might not know what business is, when you I'm gonna tell you what acting. business is. You yeah. ready? Yep. I actually found a pocket, a letter in my pocket, addressed to the cast of Absence of Malice, and it says, "Dear Absence of Malice cast, please either chew gum or play with a rubber band or drink coffee." or spill coffee, or rifle through papers, or pretend to smoke a cigarette, or nurse a drink, or fiddle with a microphone, or tug at your clothes while saying your lines. You are all very talented and do not need that bullshit. Love the script. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. Thanks, man. I couldn't, I swear to God, I was like, I am so busy watching all of your realism i don't know what you're saying like i'm not even listening to it <laughs> yeah before very, band very that elastic band like it was i was like bob put it down you're better than that so much you're so talented you don't need that rubber band put it down baby put it down <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it just seemed like a big thing in the absence of malice but they all had to have something a drink a rubber band papers coffee something it was all just like Look how real I They're all in a room with Paul Newman. You notice Paul Newman doesn't have to do shit. He just stands still and you're like, everybody take a note from Paul. Now, obviously, only Paul Newman looks like Paul Newman, even at that age. But my God, he's so fantastic. He just, he's like, I don't have to do all this nonsense. Here's the thing, though. Paul Newman had to set up an entire meal on a boat while he's talking to Sally Field. I did not once notice that I was not once distracted by him putting together this entire meal, getting out a table, doing this, flipping that up, blah, blah, blah. I never once stopped listening to what he was saying. That's the difference. Because yeah, mm. he's a king. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, had, have you guys had tragic uh, run-ins with business in acting school or on sets or whatever? Do, do actors really go for it big time? And do they get shot down by directors? I don't know. I found uh, on my show, I, I loved our prop department and I, for whatever reason, my character was constantly two minutes before we would shoot the scene. Props would come up to me with a purse, car keys, a glass, coffee, this, this, and this, and prop, 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 prop. And I would always be like, uh, why, why? <laughs> why, why so many props? Why? Why? You know, so I, I actually find that it's more of the 
personally me, I'm always as the actor going, do we really need, do I really need to be making a cup of coffee while I'm having this conversation? Can't I just like be in the middle of making coffee and then stop and talk to somebody for a second? Cause that's what, I mean, I'm usually the one as the actor saying, you know, in the script or in, at to, to directors, do I really need to be doing all that? Can I just maybe just talk and listen for a second and then go back to making coffee? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, business, it, you know, you, there's two things at work. You want things that look naturalistic and kinetic and movement and everything. But I remember shooting a scene once where the, the dialogue was important. It was a, a transitional moment in a relationship and the director wanted me to do something like 16 or 17 things whilst doing it. And he was like, I want this movement on this line and I want this movement. I was like, right, okay. What we have here is a situation where you need a glove puppet, not an actor, because (laughs) I don't, I reject your suggestion, not just because it's shit, but because you're not really thinking about what we're doing here. We're trying to tell a story, but I'm trying to tell a story and you're apparently making a cookery show at the same time. So why don't we just take all this nonsense out and let's focus on the acting and focus on the script that is actually well written. And we kind of had a bit of an argument about it. And eventually I just said, well, I'm not going to do all of that because I just think it's distracting. And when I watch it, I would say, why is that actor doing so much? Just trust yourself that the writing is good and try to serve the writing. Stop trying to serve whatever this secondary agenda of trying to make some 1970s flash, you know, back and forth movie. I just didn't get it. So I, I'm a fan of when you let the writing come to the top and when you see two actors really connecting. Business should only be there if it's moving the story forward. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of like scripts and how much storytelling they're doing, I know, uh, Boyd, you were talking about that maybe this movie hasn't aged that well for its treatment of its message i'm wondering because i had that reaction watching too because i remember loving it like when i first saw it as a kid um thinking it was really exciting and dramatic and now i was like wow this movie is very conservative very anti-press and i think maybe it's because our current situation there's been so many attacks on the press um that you start feeling or at least i start feeling very protective of journalists no i feel i mean in generally the press is sort of dying there's no money to be made, you know, uh, as a journalist or as a as a paper, um, and and a few people that own papers now, they they all have political interests. So it's like it's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. So I think we're looking at it with very different eyes. I mean, it makes sense, I think, in the 80s to have that kind of. I mean, you know, there can be bad apples everywhere. Why can't a journalist be a bad one? But um, yeah, watching it now was sort of like, ooh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Like kicking the press when they're down right now. Yeah, exactly. In this particular context. Eric, Eric, you look like you're deep in thought. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about it. I agree that, like, uh, I had never seen the movie. That was, I think, the one that I had not seen. And um, the version, the cop, the version that I watched on Crackle, which, by the way, what the fuck is Crackle? But anyway, literally the print was so bad that the whole thing looked like it was shot underwater. And I don't know if that's a Crackle thing or, or whatever, but that made it feel that much more dated. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we don't have those kind of movies anymore, you know? It was Paul Newman and, and uh, Sally Field were like at the height. I mean, this is Sally Field. I think it was the first thing after Norma Ray or, or sort of, or next thing mm-hmm. after. And so, you know, it is a like star vehicle movie and exists most, like I didn't really take its view on the press very seriously because to me it was more about getting the two of them in a movie at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it never treads very deeply. It's all very, it's a very sort of packaged uh, movie, dramatically speaking. I liked it. I thought it was very, a very good 1981 legal drama movie, but, uh, but I didn't think it was aiming for anything high. Don't you think, because I think it was the year before all the president's men had won, so after that, you know, did incredibly well and was so well received, the studios would have said, let's find another newspaper thing. But that time it was about the virtue of the press and the fifth estate being so necessary. This was more like, because you have to remember, this is before, as you say, the time we're in now where we, we want to defend the press because they're fighting to defend our democracy. In that, in 1981, we were getting more, more salacious. 
magazines were getting more gossipy, tabloids were getting more gossipy. And I think that this was sort of saying, we need to stop this runaway train that celebrity and gossip and falsehoods are being printed all the time. I think it was aiming at that. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it sort of falls a little short of that pedigree. Yeah. How did you guys feel about it in general as a movie, though? Because I even and it was not because of that we were watching it specifically for Melinda Dillon, but I really felt after spoiler alert, she dies like very quite early in the movie that it loses so much steam after that to to the point where I started like get, not being able to follow the plot of what who was who was betraying who and where were all these people's agendas and um. I admit I lost interest. Yeah, I didn't really care about anybody. I cared a little bit about Paul Newman just because he's Paul Newman and I'll always care about him. But I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't really care about anybody in, in that movie, Melinda Dillon included. But I mean, she didn't have a lot of screen time either. You know, we didn't have a chance to get to know her very much. But I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't like anybody in it. I, I couldn't connect to anybody. And I was just like, eh. Mm. What's interesting though is we talk about films sort of dated and stuff and aging and that film does feel very dated, very aged and so on. But then you take something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is not in the ones we're talking about. And that movie, every frame is still gorgeous. Every frame is still right. The pacing, the editing, the music, everything still holds perfectly up. Whereas this really felt the significance of its, its age and its time, its framing, its editing, its music choices. And the same with Only When I Laugh. It couldn't have felt more old-fashioned. But yeah. yet Raiders still has a contempt. Like, you could release Raiders today exactly as it is, and audiences would still love it, I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Amir, since you, since you were the, the one who wasn't alive in 1981, which of, those, which of these movies felt like it was made the longest ago to you? Mm, probably on Golden Pond. Uh, but this one also, I don't really know if uh, I blow hot and cold with Sidney Pollock. I, I don't know if he's the right kind of director for this film. He's very proficient and kind of just has a good team of craftsmen. But I don't know if he thinks in visual terms enough for a film like this to not feel flat. Mm -hmm. um, so once that critical moment happens and Melinda Dillon's char character is out of the story, it doesn't, like you said, basically, I mean, at that point, I kind of stopped caring about what happens to whoever. Uh, Paul Newman's Paul Newman, so I care about him anyway, right? He, he has charm. He, he'll carry any role to, or carry the audience through any role. But this one, I kind of, yeah, I lost interest. It's just not exciting enough mm. in, like, formal terms for me to make, to care about the story. Yeah, when when it comes to like what has aged, in a all of them though mostly. I mean, basically, like you were saying at the beginning, I don't know which of you. I think Sean said that. I don't know if films like Reds and Ragtime get made anymore at all, right? So I don't think they're. It's not that they're aged. It's just that we don't see films like them made at all, right? Well, one thing um, I thought was so I don't know. I mean the the. the uh, only when I laugh is basically like a soap, soap opera on TV. Like yeah. not even right. It just it's so nondescript. I have a know. really I have a really soft spot though for movies that are contemporary, that are meant to be about the contemporary moment. That are like not period pieces. Whereas some period pieces are obviously about whatever people are thinking about right then in like your current year. But only when I laugh, I love seeing movies like this, even if they aren't good, because. I think this is some sort of window into that time period. Mm. You know, like people are trying to to be however, whatever version of naturalism or realism they're going for. Obviously, it doesn't come across that way, but they are really trying to be of their time. Yeah, I mean, it's a time capsule in a way that, you know, if you were to make ragtime again today, it would probably look more or less the same as ragtime does as is, whereas... Only when I laugh, you're right. It's just the microcosm of that time, and it wouldn't exist today in any shape. Just where only when I laugh is on the alcoholic continuum of cinema. You know, you get that, like, it has that feeling where you really, there hadn't been that many movies about, like, women alcoholics yet, but there had been enough that Marsha Mason can make jokes about it, and it can be, like, a little tongue-in-cheek. But now, like, you can't make a movie all about an alcoholic. Everybody's an alcoholic. 
know. So it's like, it's, it's a nothing, you know, but it's, you know, then it was kind of like right in that window of, oh, it's still worthy of a whole movie, sort of. Yeah. You know, it's, so I think to Nathaniel, to your point, it like historically it lands in sort of socially where we viewed alcoholism in 81. But I, I thought it was fascinating for other reasons, even though I don't think it's a good movie. Like, I love like the weird sexual politics. The parenting, the, I had a lot of questions about as well. The what? The parenting or lack yeah. thereof mm -hmm. of just, you know, I, I'm by no means a helicopter parent, but there, there just seemed a very sort of nonchalance uh, from the mother to her daughter of, you know, just going from place to place in New York City in 1981. And, you know, are you coming home tonight? Where are you living? Doesn't matter. I'm an alcoholic. Like, I mean, I just, I'm not ready. The mother said, I'm not ready for you to come home. And I'm like, It is so? parenting, isn't it? It's like a how to fuck your child up. By Marsha Mason. <laughs> well, she just didn't care though. Like she literally was. Darling, like, just take that cocaine and go over there. Mummy, mummy needs a nap. <laughs> <laughs> or just like don't live with me at all. Whatever. Yeah, like, no, but see, that's what I thought was so. She's like sixteen. Yeah, but that's what I thought was so interesting because it made me think of like the the sort of er a few years earlier the Kramer versus Kramer stuff and all this stuff happening with feminism and and you know sort of like there was so much controversy over Kramer for Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer for that reason. Like she's trying to find herself. And yeah. so therefore like the identity as a mother is not her whole identity. And so I think it's an interesting window into a completely different way of thinking about it, even if it's. Offensive. Yeah. I'll tell you though, like as a mother, you got to do the job though. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't have to be your identity, but you got to like, you know, make an effort for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm a working parent. I'm a mom. I go and work. But Jesus Christ, I know where my kid is. I know where he's living. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I was just like, I can't, I don't, I just don't get it. Just don't have a kid then. I don't know. But I think the movie wants you to sympathize with her, right? When she decides she's, she's just not ready for it. Yeah, which I think is weird. The whole problem with this movie is it probably in 1981 felt like it had a moral core, an important message, how the world is changing, how things are changing for women. We can even have women alcoholics now. But the thing is, it just felt like a half-hour sitcom with heart was stretched into two hours with an underbelly of PSA. Do you know what I mean? And even yeah. at the end of the PSA, it's not like, do you know what, I've really learned the folly of my ways, I've been drinking and not parenting. And at the end, she's like, no, I think you should probably still go. I may still drink or not. I'm like, okay, so it's the PSA that doesn't really land. <laughs> no, <laughs> Neil, like... what are we doing here? What are you telling us? What are, we, what are we learning from this? Other than, please don't make me watch only when I laugh again. Well, only, you know, as a parent, if I can totally get on board of a mom and it being like, totally risque for a mom to be like, hey, I need to step out for a second. But this, this, the scene that we are missing is, so I've set you up at your aunt's. You're going to stay there. Here's my phone number. Like, I mean, like, there was, there was no, like, mom plan. It was just like, I'm not ready. You're on your own. I'm going to be a dissenter because I love Only When I Laugh, and I know it's a bad movie. I get it. It's inauthentic. It's a bunch of Neil Simon wisecracks and keep, nothing ever gets real at any moment, even though it's claiming to be real. And mm. I, I get it. But I think it's so sweet and entertaining. I will say James Coco is the saving grace of that film. And I'm sure some gay men may get annoyed because he seems too stereotypical, but I actually really loved him. And he was the real bright spot in the movie for me because... I don't know. He just, he had heart and humor. He delivered everything nicely for me. And that, that was one of the bits that I really enjoyed about the film, even though I didn't enjoy it largely as a whole, but he's super sweet. In I know most people don't like it. I think Joan Hackett is, is like pretty amazing in it actually. He's I think good. He's, he's so good. funny 
and yeah. she like lands every line she has that yeah. like finds another a whole other set of layers towards the end of the movie it absolutely is i know donna lynn you wrote like you know that it's a by the numbers sort of thing and it totally is but extremely has, well art, executed but extremely I mean, well executed you know i think she laid her roadmap she made a lot of smart choices they let her make they let her have an arc she started with a mask of makeup and ended up i mean like it's a very clean, technically well-executed thing. I just never had a moment where I was either surprised or where I was just like, wow, that, that was an incredible moment. I just never had that. But I think she, I think she did a really exceptional job technically with what she had. I, I, I really loved her in it, actually. And I was surprised because in the first scene, I was like, what is this person? <laughs> like, I did not understand what was happening in that first scene with her. Um, and the hairdo and all the, the weird makeup choices that the makeup department made in this movie. Yeah. Um, but I really think it's like, it's what you're saying. It's the final scene. It's like the way she, she turns the character and where you're suddenly getting new layers and they don't feel like she was cheating. You know, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's just a new character now. It feels like... No, I believe her, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that scene in the balcony is amazing. That's where you sort of feel like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, yeah, I agree. That's where you go, oh, I see the nomination now. Yeah, okay. yeah. Exactly, that's the scene that got her nominated, yeah. And I think that it, it it's very obvious to me. I'm not an actor, but it's it's obvious to me. My, my position is that she makes Marsha Mason better in that scene, too. Yeah, <laughs> like she I does. Think, I agree. Yeah, and so I think that must, you know, maybe you guys could speak to this. Of when you're working in a scene where somebody's doing a really good job, it probably does change the way you're performing if you're a good actor. You can sink or swim. I mean, Jane Fonda sank, mm. I think, whereas I think in, in this case she swam. Yeah. You know, I, you can either rise to the level of your partner or, you know, tragically be be left behind uh, yeah and again it's a it's a good performance both both comedically and dramatically she she uh doesn't let the movie down she's strong uh she's done her homework you can tell i think the thing that overall takeaway was for me this year showed that there really was not a great deal of good writing out there for women certainly in yep. secondary roles i mean this is something we talk about a lot more now and we're becoming a lot more female centric but back then i mean the woman roles they're just this is the five best of the year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody with four scenes. So, I mean, it's you know, eight you minutes of, long. It's insane. Think of Brenda Fricker in My Left Foot. Now that is an Oscar-winning performance where the writing is there. A brilliant, brilliant, memorable performance. I just felt none of these five uh, were anywhere near that level of, or you know, Heath Ledger in supporting in the Joker. You think how monumental that is. And then you go, this is the same category. They're not even in the same universe for me. But in a way, though, and I think, Boyd, you also reacted this way because we were talking offline. It, it's exciting that it used to be the supporting categories used to actually be supporting roles because, like, none of these people are anywhere close to leads. We're running out of time, but we have to talk about Reds and Ragtime. They're both massive epics. I personally, I don't know how all of you feel. I think they're both really, really strong movies. Mm -hmm. I was so surprised by Ragtime. That, that's the I one that I had Ragtime. ever seen. And I was so surprised at how ambitious it was and how, like, complicated it was because it's not perfect, I, but it's trying to do a lot. I know, but why, I can't, why, why do we think it wasn't nominated for Best Movie? I was shocked when I was sort of looking over the, the nominations list for that year. Rags was not nominated for Best Director. It wasn't nominated for Best Movie. It was nominated for a bunch of other stuff. Maybe because Milo Foreman had just cleaned up with once, uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and oh. there was the residual, okay, well, Ragtime is great. Milo Foreman is brilliant. He's a master of his art. But we just gave him. You know, you have to get back in the queue and wait. There's a couple of... Yeah. <laughs> right. Warren, Beatty. Warren Beatty, one best director. You can see in the movie, I, I know a few people that have met Warren and they say that his charisma is so powerful it's like the tractor beam in Star Wars. He, he can make you pregnant just by saying hello to you. And so that's why you see people like Gene Hackman popping up for two scenes in Reds. You see Jack Nicholson, who is just amazing in this role as, as uh, Eugene O'Neill. He just went to all his friends and went, hey, it's Warren. Come and do this thing for me. And everyone went, yep, you're Warren. Nobody says no to you. 
And that right. film is peppered with great performances by fabulous actors that any other studio probably wouldn't have got, but Warren Beatty could get them. I just wish he'd taken the scissors to that film to the tune of about 30 minutes. Because yeah, it, I didn't love it. Urgent, too long. And there's a great movie in there that gets lost in the edit for my money uh, because it's too indulgent because it's directed by an actor, not a serious director. I mean, it's definitely indulgent, but I just, I admire it so much. And with both, with both Ragtime and Reds, I think they're both better for how thorny they are and how, how much you're like, does this movie need this? Or, because they're both going in so many different directions and there's so many characters and there's so many, like, Plot. It didn't bother me in Ragtime. I thought yeah. Ragtime was pretty tight. I, l- I loved Ragtime. Yeah, in Red, it was just sort of like, how many times are we going to see them fight again? <laughs> now that they're yelling at each other again. I, I'm, I'm wondering. It felt like he was going to, he was, like Warren Beatty was trying to make his Lawrence of Arabia, but he also loved kind of kitchen sink drama, that kind mm-hmm. of like 70. Yes. So he didn't really know what the tone of them. I want, I want great big. Just, train stations in Russia, but then I want very small scenes. And you're like, okay, but you, you're, tr- you're going for two different contrary themes. That's the movie. beauty of it to me, though. I think it is yeah. a glorious mess. I do think the movie's super messy, but like, it, I just love that there's a movie that is about ideas. The movie is literally about, and not even, it's about specific ideas, but overall it's about ideas and people who have ideas and conviction to execute those ideas and a lack of vision in making those ideas come to life. I mean, it literally is about what ideas we have and what we do with those ideas. And Mm -hmm. it's, to me, that's such a beautiful thing for a movie to be about. And so while it's set against this sort of sweeping you know, Russian Revolution, Bohemian West Village thing. It's really a super small movie in, in terms of, you know, it's just about people who were trying to bridge a new way of viewing things, tried to get by. And I think it's so great. And I'm kind of obsessed with Diane Keaton in the movie. I think she's oh, so great in it. And what I do love about her performance in it is, it's to the point of other actors giving, like, I feel like Nicholson brings out something totally different in Diane Keaton than Warren Beatty does. She's even different in her scenes with Stapleton. Like everybody, she's just very spongy in that way. And you get a lot of different sides of her in a really fascinating way in that movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but I had remembered Reds as like, I, I only seen it once before this, but I had loved it the first time I'd seen it as well. But it was a long time ago, and I rem- my big takeaway was, oh, my God, Maureen Stapleton was so brilliant. And this time through, I w- she was like, yeah, she's, she's great, but <laughs> I was so focused on everybody else, and I, w- I thought all of the performances were at that level. Ooh. She was amazing, yeah. Like, Diane I mean, Keaton was I think like, one of the yeah, reasons that uh, Stapleton's performance kind of sticks out too is what Eric was saying about ideas and the film being about ideas because that that's kind of the moment where it solidifies for me the rest of the film I either felt like what Donna was saying they were just like arguing to the point that really wore me down or basically using politics as a background for the love story really like I didn't it I didn't feel that involved with the with the Russian Revolution as much as I and I don't think Beatty does as much as he does with the love story um, but then that moment is kind of a reality check where you finally get like a statement from somebody and it, it's a reality check for Beatty's character too. I remember watching this film at university uh, for a class on history and film um, and um, a writer whose name I forget uh, off the top of my head had written about how this is basically a Brooklyn liberal arts person's version of the Russian revolution. Um, and in that <laughs> one, mo- which is really what the film is, um, and in that moment, more at the end, Stapleton's final scene is kind of a reality check of like, okay, actually these ideals are failing, so let me tell you what the reality is, and it really hits you. Um, so in like a three and a half hour film, you kind of get a how many scenes is she even in? I don't know, not 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 no. very many, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's the moment that really stuck out for me when you think about the political thesis of the film. Yeah, and it, I love that that's about, it's sort of about that that love affair with their idealism ending, mm-hmm. whereas the rest of the movie is about sort of 
the love affair that they were trying to be all free love about and that, you know, it, it, it's just a thing. It doesn't define us was really what was defining them. I, I Anyway, I just love the movie. Well, me too, um, and I think it's very rare now that, I mean, nowadays you wouldn't be able to make this movie with that script. I just love the fact that it's a messy movie about a messy situation and about ideas that don't come to fruition. And I don't know, there's something really great about that, and there would be no way in hell that people would make that movie with that script today. So 100%. I also I love, I mean, can't imagine how much it costs. I mean, yeah. 35 million for a movie about communism. It's, I mean, the paradox is so amazing. Yeah, Sean and I talked to off uh, board about this. And, you know, it's one of the things where just, again, historically, it's like Beatty came from, you know, he was in those movies when Lawrence of Arabia and, and Dr. Zhivago and those sort of, so his, his touchstone is sort of that classical David Lean cinema sort of thing. But that isn't who he really is. But I think he like, he has, he has one foot in and one foot out your point and that's why I think people find it unsuccessful is that he is using this sort of sweeping epic David Leamy thing in the storytelling but he really just wants to fight with Diane Keaton for two hours not only have the same fight in the movie over and over again but do 80 takes of every fight yeah <laughs> I can't yeah oh. um, they were also fighting so it's like it must have been amazing yeah so we have to wrap up, but we, uh, I have to announce that I, I was completely surprised, but not, but in a good way, that Elizabeth McGovern tied Maureen Stapleton. Yeah. Not expecting that. Um, I'll tell you what, I saw Ragtime like when I was 10. And the only thing that I remember from that movie before I watched it again were two moments, and they both belong to Elizabeth McGovern. You know, and then watching it again, I was just, I just think she's miraculous in it. I really do. I just think she's so spontaneous and honest and interesting. And, and I don't know, I just, I could go on for days about her performance in this, in this well, film. One of the reasons, all time favorite. Yeah. One of the reasons I love doing these is like hearing other people's opinions. Like I, I kept going back and forth with her. I'm like, is she brilliant or is she bad? <laughs> I was all she's over brilliant. the place with her. And I will say, Donna, you're right up with her. I was like, I get it. I, I will die on her. that hill. I will die on that hill. She is brilliant. She's brilliant. I didn't love her. She Who said that? She you may have won that Who year. did it? How dare you? She may have won that year, had more been nominated four times before. I think the Academy wanted to give it to Stapleton and thought Elizabeth Gavin yeah. has got many more years to get her Oscar, but that probably was her moment. I'm not sure if she ever ha actually won, but... For me, it was a more interesting performance than, than Maureen Stapleton's. Even though Wait, I loved who it. said they didn't like her because you all froze? <gasps> Eric, how dare you? <laughs> I didn't dislike her. I just thought she was all over the map. But that was what was so brilliant about it. In my mind, she's like a five-year-old. I think you're being generous. I just think, and I thought Milos Foreman didn't help her. I also thought her role on the page was, again, to the point of like in one scene, she was kind of like this, and the next scene she was this. I was never clear why, like how she really felt about me being married to Harry Thaw, really. I didn't know how she felt about, it was just very moment to moment. And in any given scene, oh, that's what she I was she's like, that. And, she's like that. She's like naive and she has no idea. She's like a she's thinking herself. She's inventing it. her own life as she's, she's all making it up as she goes along. I, see, I, the thing that sold me on the performance and then hearing the those of you who really liked it, I was like, yeah, was that idea that she's sort of attracted to the spontaneity spontaneity and that she's making it up as she goes along and i loved that she lit up whenever it became chaotic with the the, the crazier the scenes got the more in energized her performance was which is i think a really interesting comment on what you're what you were saying donna lynn about her being a child woman like she needs yeah, well, to the be, fun like, part here. about that choice is that everything, almost everything of hers is a discovery, too, which is just super fun to watch. And I, I just love the fact that, like, everything seemed to be new to her, and she, the way she would react to it was not, was, in my opinion, completely honest, but not, you know, like, for example, in, in the black and white section in the prologue, you know, there's this moment where she real, slowly realizes that her husband is batshit. And, like, a lesser actress she's standing behind him or next to him and a lesser actress in that moment would maybe make a look and step back. But what she does is her, her mind, her face just goes completely sort of 
actively blank like a five-year-old when like daddy loses his mind you know a kid a kid will not comment on the situation a kid will just go to a place of pure observation because it's something they've never seen before and it's just moments like that that i just i just dig it i dig the whole thing i i agree i i saw the same things that you saw and and also the other thing that's interesting about that all of the other ladies in this category didn't have an enormous amount of screen time. She felt more like a female lead. I don't know why she's supporting. Who's the female lead that's more screen time than her in this movie? Why, is she, why is she not? I just didn't kind of, I felt like, she felt like a lead to me, not supporting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I sort of hated the fact that she was my favorite of the bunch at first because we write so much about the Academy stereotypically just always awarding women when they're young and attractive and then making men wait boobs. for it. And yeah, I show their roofs. And so I was like, oh, geez, now why is she my favorite of the five? And now I'm going to be a straight man stereotype. <laughs> and then and then Nathaniel sent your write-ups. And I was like, oh, yes, almost everybody loved her. And then I read your, you know, Donna's writing. It's like, okay, yeah, not just yeah. me then. Good. Well, We're in I, the clear. I, I was very surprised by this, too, because my favorite scene of hers, I think, is her nude scene. And I, I thought I was going to be... I thought I was going to object to that scene because I was like, oh, because I'd heard she does the whole scene naked. And I was like, oh, that's going to be exploitative. It did not feel that way at all. And it's because and no, the, it I believe it's the way she did it is that it was not uh, exploitative at all. It no, was, she looked comfortable in it. I like if I feel like the actress on set was comfortable in her skin. She didn't look like she was trying. She was. Fully like, I've, me and Mark talked about it, I'm in agreement, and I know why I'm doing it, there was no reservation about it, and it wasn't gratuitous, it didn't feel, which some people could say, oh yeah, there's no reason for it, but it speaks to her chaotic, carefree, devil-may-care, laser-affair, kind of, whatever, I don't, well, let's also, just roll with it today. Like, you have little kids, how impossible is it to put a shirt on a five-year-old when they're about ready to have a My tantrum? My kids love jumping up and down singing, I'm naked, I'm naked, I'm naked, <laughs> in the front right. window of the house. We're going to have social services come over here. <laughs> but that's kind of what it looked like to me with a five-year-old without a top on, which yeah. is every day, yeah. uh, you know, focused on the toy that they were promised. Yeah. And the nothing first toy was a million dollars. I loved it. Yeah. It also makes the intrusion feel greater because, I mean, you know, for us as a normal audience, you're looking at that scene, you're like, she's naked and these men are coming in with the papers and saying this and this and that and that, but she doesn't care at all. Yeah. It really yeah. underlines the point of that scene where she, where she's just like, this is, yeah, this is not an intrusion. Okay, this is a business thing. Okay. She wants her toy. Yeah, I, exactly. agree. I agree that that was her best scene for sure. So, and you do see that sort of like, you know, as ever, you know, she knows she she got played, but she's not going to get completely played. Like she is a survivor. You get that sense of kind of like she's smart enough to know, you know, that her body has been a, a selling and buying tool on some level, and she's been smart about using it. She played her part. She's going to get something. She's not going to get what she was hoping, but she's going to take care of herself. And yeah. so I thought like the she was a very strong character in that moment. So it was, the scene was definitely not about her boobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. So the question I love and to end. to leave you on boobs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so therefore, one more question. So we don't end on boobs. Um, we always do this uh, recasting the parts. I just want each person to name one switch between these ladies, give them a different part, and what you think would have been interesting about it, even if you think they were all perfectly cast. Just a just a mental exercise to show how different a movie can be with different actors playing the parts. I would like to see Melinda Dillon um, play Jane Fonda's role on Golden Pond. I I feel like her her vulnerability um, and she didn't have a smoke in it, so Sean, you'd be happy about that. <laughs> um, but uh, I just feel like Melinda Dillon has a has a vulnerability plus an intelligence that I was I felt I was missing from Jane Fonda's performance in Golden Pond. I so I would like to see that switched. I, I concur. I also think Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark would have also done a much more interesting job with that role. I think the fact that she was Henry's biological daughter in real life did not help her. It actually hurt her. And there's one bit where they hug 
where I uh, actually went, oh, God, that's awful. I was I like, you're thinking about. this is a crime against acting. You're terrible, both of you. <laughs> bad acting, bad acting. It was actually made me have Tourette's. I was just like, oh, James, what are you doing? Yeah. Just, she was like, ha, ah. ha, I was like, oh, gosh, no. no. On Golden Pond, no more. Uh, Boyd, how about you? Um, I would love to see Elizabeth McGovern take on Joan Hackett's role. I think that there's something interesting about the two, I mean, the two women that they're portraying and, I don't know, you know, one might even be like an older version of the other one in, in some sense. Um, I don't know, there's some kind of affinity there and it would be interesting to see, since we know that they can play similar characters, like what what the differences would really be. So I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. Amir. I think Joan Hackett and Melinda Dillon's role would be nice too, actually. I was on the minority on Joan Hackett because I don't think that, I think that was more my allergic reaction to the film itself more than her performance. So I would have liked to see her in a better role, which I think Melinda Dillon's is. So that would have been nice. Yeah. Eric? I think I'd like to see the flip of Donna Lynn and Sean's, which is uh, Jane Fonda in Only When I Laugh, because, uh, you know, it, Jane Fonda had that in, or when she started in the 60s with the days and those kind of movies with, and Barefoot in the Park was so sort of like sparkly as a comedian. And then in the late, she did all the serious movies in the 70s that she's so great in. But then like her, her acting when it came to comedy became really, really tight and she wasn't great. And so even in nine to five, she's, I love nine to five. It's a favorite all time for me, but she's not, the best. She's the weakest link in that film. Yes, exactly. So I think like to to see her bring her like sixties comic fizz to a role like that would would have been fun to see. Yeah, my Jane Fonda is also my answer, but in the Emma Goldman role, just because like I would, I'm fascinated by like her activism in real life and how that would translate if she was performing that. I know, but she didn't really translate very well father-daughter to father-daughter. <laughs> I'm just saying. And that's fairly fundamental. You can't get that right. Oh, no. Let's not veer onto politics and everything else. Just be what you naturally are. <laughs> difficult. But I'm, I, I'm, I love Jane Fonda. I'm just, like, super in love with her always. So um, even if when she's not good, I'm glad I watch her. I'm not a big fan of her acting, if I'm honest, but I'm a huge fan of her as a person. And a friend of mine directs her in Grace and Frankie, and it's interesting hearing about her. But her activism is so worthy of, you know, bowing down. Because do you know that she did all of those workout videos? Every penny she made, which was gazillions of dollars, all went to the ACLU and places that needed help with justice and things. So she's done some pretty remarkable things in her lifetime, and she does deserve a lot of uh, fanfare for that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for talking 1981. As we say goodbye, I just want to hear what your favorite movie from 1981 is. Sean McGuire, thanks for joining us. Excited to see you on this last season of the... Is is it the last season of The Magicians? It's wrapping up. Yeah, that was it. That was the... Oh, that was it. I just have to say, shout out. I'm a huge fan of Magicians and and you, Sean. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. That's I great. love that show. I'm very sad that it's over. <laughs> yeah, they're a lovely bunch of people, but it was a nice job to do in their last season. Yeah. And I think that you already told us what your favorite is, though, right? Raiders, probably. I, I think so. For just pure cinematic joy and escapism, which is really what movies, in my opinion, were created for in the first place, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is pretty much a perfect movie. I don't yeah. think you... I don't think you'd want to go and change or mess around with anything there. And it set up a, a great franchise. So, yeah, for me, for just, uh, for Chariots of Fire was also a great movie that year. Yeah. Donna, Lynn, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, honey. Um, I don't know. I mean, Heart Beeps touched me <laughs> in a way that I still haven't recovered from. Um, in a, like a Catherine Hepburn touching us? I have to say, I mean, I, I also, I love the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I loved Arthur. Oh, Arthur's fun. Arthur's such a, I love that one. But I think, I really do think out of all the films, I would have to say Ragtime. I just, I love that movie. And I have to say Ragtime, especially because it wasn't nominated. I feel strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Boyd, thanks for joining us. What's your 1981 favorite? 
Yeah, I think it might have to be Ragtime as well. It was just, I mean, I love Milos. I mean, all his work is great, and I'd never seen it, so it was, it was very exciting to sort of discover that sort of lost piece of his, um, well, for me, lost in any case. It was, it was just amazing. Um, for me, it could have gone on for another five hours. It would have been great. <laughs> like a mini series. And Amir, now that you've joined the 81 world that you hadn't been part of before. Yeah, I actually had to go to my letterbox account to check what my favorites were. I mean, of, of the bunch that we saw here, Ragtime is definitely my favorite, too. Uh, but it looks like 1981 is a three-way tie between Mephisto, Modern Romance, and Blowout. So. Ooh, I've never seen Modern Romance, so I will have to check that out yeah. in your list. My favorite is uh, Raiders of Lost Ark, but Reds is a close second for me, actually. Um, and Eric, how about you? Yeah, I have a soft spot for Reds. I told Shauna, I, I wrote my undergrad thesis on, on Warren Beatty, actually, so I spent a lot of time with Reds. And um, I met Beatty at the Bullworth premiere in, at the um, now-dead Ziegfeld Theater in New York City. And I went up to him, which I don't usually do. But, um, you know, I said, hey, I wrote my undergrad. I said, I know this is going to be weird, but I wrote my undergrad thesis about you. And he went, wow, that is weird. <laughs> like, and uh, and he said, uh, how'd, how'd you do on it? I was like, oh, I got a B plus. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to take the B plus. And um, were you charmed like, by him, Eric? Were you completely charmed by him in that moment? Yeah, yeah, were yeah. Were you yeah. pregnant? Were you pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've had one of Warren Beatty's babies. Okay. Yes, exactly. Your pants just combusted and fell off. He did. But, but Sean, you do that to me too. Ah, oh, God bless you. <laughs> I've met Warren Beatty too, but I did not have quite that uh, reaction. You didn't get pregnant. I did not. No, but I love him as an actor, though. I love his movies in general. So He's a movie star, that's for sure. Well, thank you all for joining us for the SmackDown and revisiting 1981. Under-discussed year, I think, given how many strong movies there, there were. Yeah. Um, anyway, this was great fun. So thanks again to Eric Bloom, Amir Sultani, Boyd Van Hoy, Donna Lynn Champlin, and Sean McGuire. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. It was fun.